0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am Rusty, and this is Sheringford's Table Talk, the podcast about the lives and times of fictional detectives. In today's episode, we will have a first outlook on what's to come next for the detective character. For that, we will momentarily, but certainly not eternally, leave the realm of the cozy and amusing crimes of the gentleman armchair detectives And we will concentrate our focus on the much more sinister, cynical, and gritty world of the hard-boiled private investigators. Hard-boiled fiction is an actual term for a certain literary genre that found its existence somewhere between detective fiction and noir fiction crime stories. Hardball fiction is mostly characterized by a single protagonist who takes on the fight against a corrupted society and all its connected aftermaths. The protagonists thereby often take on the roles of some sort of anti-heroes, not so much because of self-interest, but rather because the corrupted legal world doesn't allow them to follow the classical heroic lines which are defined by idealism and a conventional ethical code. Hardball fiction and noir fiction are very closely connected and the terms are often used interchangeably. Experts and authors in the field of crime fiction, however, see a clear and necessary distinction between the two genres. And since I do not count as neither of them, I will use a quote by crime fiction author Megan Abbott to draw the border between the fields for you. In an interview with the Swanee Review in June 2018, she said, quote, Hardboiled is distinct from noir, though they are often used interchangeably. The common argument is that hardboiled novels are an extension of the Wild West and pioneer narratives of the 19th century. The wilderness becomes the city and the hero is usually a somewhat fallen character, a detective or a cop. At the end, everything is a mess. People have died, but the hero has done the right thing, or close to it, and order has, to a certain extent, been restored. Noir is different. In noir, everyone is fallen, and right and wrong are not clearly defined and maybe not even attainable. End quote. Taking this definition as our basis for the moment, it is pretty safe to say that the detective of today is part if not even the founding stone of hard-boiled fiction. He's easily as famous and popular as all the detectives on our list so far and he has also brought the detective character on a new level. He has enriched it with a new persona and thereby he has inspired countless of other characters coming after him. Episode 12, at sharingfords Table Talk. Philip Marlowe If you ask his friends they will probably tell you that Phil Marlowe is a tough cookie I bet that if you'd ask his enemies, they will tell you that he's a tough cookie. (laughs) Heck, I bet even his own parents will tell you that Phil Mardo is a goddamn tough cookie. Los Angeles, California, 1936. On the sixth floor of the Cahuenga building, a tall and handsome brown-haired, brown-eyed man stood by an open window. He took a few sips of the stiff one he had mixed himself when he got home. The man needed the drink. He needed a lot of life insurance. He needed vacation, he needed a home in the country. What he had was a coat, a hat and a gun. The man sipped at his drink and gazed at the Laurel Canyon Boulevard in front of him. He listened to the swell of the traffic for a while until his eyes glared over to the big, angry city hanging over the shoulder of the hills through which the boulevard had been cut off. The man was a romantic. When he heard voices crying in the night, he went and saw what's the matter. He didn't take a dime that way. There was no percentage in it at all. Still, seeing the city lights in the distance, his features hardened. Out there in the night of a thousand crimes, people were dying, he thought. They're being maimed, cut by flying glass, crushed against steering wheels or under heavy tires. People were being beaten, robbed, strangled, raped and murdered. People were hungry, sick, bored, desperate with loneliness or remorse or fear, angry, cruel, feverish, shaken by subs. It was a city no worse than others, a city rich and vigorous and full of pride, a city lost and beaten and full of emptiness. It all depended on where you sit and what your own private score was. The man in the window didn't have one. He didn't care. He finished the drink and went to bed. This extract that you just heard about the man in the window, who we all know is Philip Marlowe, is a collection of quotes from different Marlowe stories that I cut together in an attempt to present you the very essence, the Californian-born P.I., is all about. To a certain extent, Phil Marlowe can be seen as the perfect byproduct of his time, the wild years in Los Angeles between the early 1930s and late 1950s. He is a heavy smoker. He drinks on a regular basis, preferably whiskey and brandy, or on hot summer days, also a gimlet, which is his favorite cocktail. Philip Marlowe wears the hat the heavy suits, and the classical trench coat. His small office in the city is the prototype which all future lone wolf detective offices are designed after. There is the big wooden desk with the classical gun and booze drawer, there is the squeaky leather office chair, an overflowing file cabinet, and the windows with the blinds before them. Philip Marlowe himself also entails everything the classical tough private eye should look and be like He is tall, handsome and charismatic. He's just one inch short of being six foot two. He has broad shoulders, brown hair and brown eyes. His classical tough guy persona is rounded up by his occasional snarky, cynical comments and his privately hopeful but melancholic outlook on life. His age is less of a steady feature. Marlowe is 33 in 1933, he's 42 in 1953 and 43 and a half in 1958. So if we want to get a more definite image of him we can say that on average Philip Marlowe is around 39 years old. Is it the tough world which Philip Marlowe lives in that makes him the way he is, or is he the tough one whose outlook on life shapes the world around him? That is the question that I always ask myself when I read a Philip Marlowe novel. The eight original stories by Raymond Chandler that were published over the time between 1939 and 1962 were all written from a first-person perspective. In them, we can follow Marlowe around his daily life. We gain insight into his thoughts and views on his life and on that of others. Philip Marlowe's perspective is thereby not only crucial for the plots of the stories, but it also drastically shapes our perspective about the world and time he lives in. When Marlowe dislikes a client or a person, he will describe him or her in a way that makes us dislike him or her as well. The streets of Los Angeles and its people at that time are all shaped after how Marlowe sees them. The novels, therefore, give us a unique, but also a highly subjective insight into American life, culture, and its society during the era of the Prohibition. Interestingly, and a bit unexpectedly, Philip Marlowe's subjective view is not at all one dimensional. Despite all the reasons for him being or becoming just another byproduct of his time and his environment, Philip Marlowe withstands many of its influences. In a world of legal corruption, Philip Marlowe's moral compass remains steady. Even though his clients mostly consist of corrupted cops and lawyers, mysterious femme fatale or illegally rich and shady business moguls, Marlowe remains incorruptible. He never accepts bribery. He withstands all kinds of blackmailing and he doesn't get confused or manipulated by beautiful blonde girls. Marlowe trusts in knowing what's right and he strictly follows his own lead. He doesn't care if he gets threatened or beaten or shot. Once he has started to follow a trace, nothing but death will put him off it. The interesting and conflicting question that many of the Marlowe stories pose to us is why on earth does this man put himself through all this seemingly endless misery that many of his cases bring to light? Marlowe would have the choice. Many times he shows us that he's perfectly capable of doing something else entirely, something more secure or better paid at least, since his current position is not even that. The answer to that question, though, can probably be found in Marlowe's moral code. On the one hand, there is the glorious and heroic aspect of it all. Philip Marlowe's moral code guided him on his path. Whenever there is trouble or danger, Marlowe simply cannot help himself. He must jump in for the rescue. Most of his decisions seem to be steered by his wish to do the right thing an absolute noble and good attitude. Looking at Marlowe's inner values, his career and his numerous wishes to have a better life, however, a much more tragic aspect of his character is revealed to us. Before becoming a private eye, Philip Marlowe went to college. He then started off as a private investigator for an insurance company. After that, he even worked for the Los Angeles County's district attorney for a few years. All looked bright and well until Marlowe was suddenly fired. The reason? Insubordination, or as Marlowe himself put it, for talking back. It was only after this incident that Marlowe decided to open a small single-man operation in Los Angeles. Marlowe's background gives us a lot to think. We could simply take the obvious choice and say that Marlowe has a problem with authority figures and that would perfectly well fit the profile of the lone wolf PI. But I personally like to give Marlowe the benefit of the doubt here. Trusting his descriptions of his world to be mostly objective, we can assume that Philip Marlowe had simply realized that you cannot beat the system while being a part of it. Maybe his former boss had been corrupted, like many before him, and Marlowe consequentially started to disagree with his decisions and got fired for it. In my opinion this explanation suits Marlowe better and it is in conformity with some of Marlowe's inner feelings. His personal interests reveal a bit more about the person that is hidden behind this tough-guy-persona. Philip Marlowe is a romantic, a fact that he himself had emphasized multiple times. He likes to read poems. He believes in true love and in the good in people. That's where the actual motivation for his moral code comes from. It is the belief that not everything is lost. He wishes to live a better life and he knows that this life is not out of reach for him He has the skills and the possibilities theoretically to become whatever he wants to be. The only thing that holds him back is that he has not given up on his belief that he can make a positive impact. His motivation to solve his cases therefore is a completely different one to the motivation many of the former gentleman detectives show. While there surely underlies a certain moral responsibility in all of them, many are much more drawn to the intellectual challenge of a case. Some even admit it openly, like Sherlock Holmes, Auguste Dupin, Peter Wimsey or Hercule Poirot, to just name a few. This attitude is a luxury that Marlowe doesn't have. He fights a battle that he's meant to lose, and he has to make many sacrifices to be able to stay in this profession. Marlowe's own classical approach to solving a case is different to his former colleagues. It can probably best described with putting the pieces together. His tactic entails a very systematic collection of clues by talking to the right people and being at the right places. Today, this crime solving tactic has become somewhat synonymous with hard boiled detectives. At Marlowe's time, it was a desired alternative to the otherworldly abilities and skills of a lot of the former crime fighters. Marlowe's crime solving abilities shall not be ignored, however. His respectable skill in logical reasoning, which he is used to practice regularly by replaying famous chess variations by himself, combined with his vast knowledge of the psychology of the people during his time, make him actually a formidable detective. Naturally, Marlowe does all his footwork himself and he often ends up in precarious situations this way. His harsh surroundings and the dangerous nature of many of his cases can force Marlowe to occasionally use violence, but preferably he stays away from this kind of conflict-solving. Several times he would use alcohol to make his conversation partners a little bit more susceptible to his questions, but apart from that he always stays on the side of the law and the morale. His cases never allow Marlowe the same triumphant presentation of his conclusions that made so many fictional detectives before him famous. Arriving often at very tragic endings, Marlowe's solutions entail notes of bitterness and cynicism, and. Fittingly to the genre of hard-boiled fiction, Marlowe in the end must deal with the fact that order has been restored, but that he himself is once again denied a happy ending. Philip Marlowe's fictional career is a short one, but it has nonetheless produced an entire literary genre and the inspiration for countless other detectives. We know that he ends up being married towards his last cases, but his author Raymond Chandler died before he could give us the final conclusion to the case of Philip Marlowe. There are several other authors who try to keep telling the story of the tough Californian detective, but I must say that as much as I like to have a definitive ending to a beloved character, Marlowe for me is best left as he is. I see his stories more as an insight in one more life with one more job during a particular time. It is not the legendary tale of a detective mastermind. Marlowe's stories lack the glamour and the theatrics of the gentleman detectives before him and I like it this way. I think that Marlowe himself was not about being another one of the greatest crime fighters, but he was more of a symbol for fighting adversity and staying true what is good. So, thank you very much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and if you did, I would be happy if you would leave a like or review it even. In case you want to help me out in growing a bigger audience, please feel free to recommend the podcast to your friends or your family. And lastly, if you cannot have enough detective content in your life, consider following me on Instagram, under Sheringford's underscore table, underscore talk. That's all. Have a nice day, and you will hear from me again soon.